Welcome to another episode of the Middle East News Hour. I'm really thrilled to be joined today by guest uh, Colonel Joel Rayburn um, to talk about Syria. In against the background of everything that's happening now in Ukraine with the United States, with Russia, with NATO, um, there's another story that's going on or developing simultaneous with the drama in Ukraine, and that's a rising strategic presence of the Russians in, uh, in Syria. And I thought uh, that there would be nobody better to talk about this with than with uh, Colonel Joel Rayburn. And I'm just gonna read uh, uh, Colonel Rayburn's uh, biography so that you can all understand why uh, uh, this uh, podcast is gonna be with him. So he's an historian of the Middle East and a former diplomat and military officer. He's currently writing a history of the Syrian conflict uh, under a research grant from the Smith Richardson Foundation. Previously, he served as special advisor for the Middle East in the office of Senator Bill Haggerty, a big friend of Israel. I was really happy to meet here uh, when he came with uh, Senator Ted Cruz last year. Um, but uh, most importantly for our purposes, from July 2018 to January 2021, Rayburn was a U.S. Special Envoy for Syria in that post. He oversaw U.S. diplomatic activities concerning Syria. He supervised more than 100 diplomats and civil servants across the Middle East and Europe. And from November 2020 to January 21, served as U.S. Chief of Mission for Syria. Um, until November 2020, Rayburn was also Deputy Assistant Secretary for Levant Affairs, responsible for implementing U.S. policy concerning Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon. Uh, before joining the State Department, he served for 26 years as a U.S. Army officer with his final assignment as Senior Director for Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon at the National Security Council staff in 2017-2018. He was commissioned from West Point in 1992, and he served several assignments in Europe, Middle East, South Asia, and the United States, including several deployments in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Bosnia. He's a field artillery officer in the 1st Armored Division from 93 to 96, during which he deployed to Kuwait as part of Operation Intrinsic Action and to Bosnia-Herzegovina as part of NATO's I-4. Then he transferred to military intelligence in 97. He served at Fort Huachuca in Arizona and in the 4th Infantry Division at Fort Hood. He also served as a Balkans intelligence analyst at UCOM Joint Analysis Center all of this is, of course, very relevant to what we're talking about now because you're seeing uh, with the deployment of strategic forces uh, by the Russians in Syria these days, uh, there's a lot of uh, connection between what's happening uh, in the Balkans, between uh, Russia and Ukraine, the Black Sea, um, the Dardanelles, and what's happening in Syria. So this is all very important. And then uh, he was on General David Petraeus's staff uh, in Baghdad from 2007 to 2011. He was Strategic Intelligence Advisor to General uh, General Petraeus in Iraq and at Central Command in Tampa and in Afghanistan. Um, so all of this is very impressive. And so I wanna just um, see my screen again and give a very warm welcome to you, uh, Colonel Rayburn. Thank you very much for uh, joining me on the News Hour and the Middle East News Hour this week. Thank you. Uh, a big pleasure to, to be with you. There's a lot going on. Yes, there's a lot going on. And I think you may be a very good person to talk to about a lot of it because a lot of it is new and we really need to get uh, some significant analysis before we can even do any commentary. Um, so first of all, just to bring people up to date, 
um, I think it was last week, Russia deployed um, deployed hypersonic missiles and strategic bombers to Syria. They also uh, deployed uh, nuclear capable missiles to Syria. Um, and so that's what the big new development is the in the midst of everything happening in Ukraine, the Russian defense minister Shoigo found it necessary to fly to Latakia to the uh, Russian bases there. Um, so uh, before we go into what's going on in Syria, let me just ask you this question, just general question. How does Russia see Syria? What is Syria for Russia? There's several, that, that's a really good question. Uh, they, they see it on, in, uh, from several different angles. Uh, the first one, um, the first one is that the Assad regime is their main regional client, uh, and, and having lost the Gaddafi regime in in Libya, they made a decision to pull out all the stops uh, to preserve their client regime in Damascus uh, ever since. You know, for the for the last eleven years, and not see uh, and not see not lose their further foothold. I mean, the Syrian regime going all the way back into, you know, the, the mid Cold War has been, uh, especially with the loss of the Soviet to, and Egypt relationship um, uh, in 73, Syria is the foothold for um, sort of the, the high Cold War Russian uh, interests in, in the region. So they wanted to hold on to that. They wanted to preserve it, not be, uh, uh, not leave the region. Then over time, uh, they saw it as an opportunity to expand their, their little beachhead on, in the Eastern Mediterranean to upgrade their, their presence, their naval presence, their air and ground presence uh, in that Latakia region in, at Humaymi Air Base, uh, which was just a small sleepy thing. They really expanded it and it's a, it's a big hub uh, for military activity uh, in Syria. And, and so th they've actually, They've, they've actually gotten a bigger foothold on the on the edge of the, Med the Eastern Mediterranean and the Northern Middle East than they had uh, in 2011 or before 2011. And that's important to them for power projection. I heard uh, that this was also sort of a training ground for the Russian military. Yeah. Um, can you? Can that's you absolutely right. Yeah, they, they have they've they've used uh, they've used Syria as a proving grounds for their military technology, for their armaments. Uh, for a couple of different ways, they're able to test them on the battlefield, and then by their use, that's also marketing, uh, because the the Russians, uh, for them, arms sales are, are such a huge uh, revenue stream. They they need a place, or or it was it was advantageous to them to have a place where they're constantly introducing, uh, you know, the latest, showing the effectiveness of their stuff on their wares on, on the battlefield. And that, that continues today. So they, they put the S-300 air defense system there. They have all their S-200 air defense systems and uh, a lot of other uh, weaponry. So it was very much in the same way that, for example, um, Nazi Germany used the Spanish Civil War as a testing grounds and a proving grounds for the military capabilities uh, that they would deploy well, in just, a way, I mean, you know, in 39. You could say that the United States did the same thing with the Israelis in the first Lebanon war in 1982, that uh, the Israeli airstrikes that were able to destroy the yeah. Soviet SAMs uh, showed that the US technology uh, was more powerful than the Soviet technology back then as well. So 
That's right. And the Israeli Air Force just shooting Hafez al-Assad's Air Force out of the sky with mm -hmm. almost no losses in a, in a really unequal, um, unequal uneven uh, fight. That, that you're absolutely right. That that had a strategic impact, and so what the so so the Russians see Syria as that. There's also there's another aspect. Uh, the the Russian military has been rotating through. They don't have many people in Syria at any one time. I would be surprised if they have more than five thousand, somewhere between four and five thousand at any given time. But they're rotating them through all the time. So there is a large portion of the Russian military that has field experience in Syria, and and so that, that's uh, not something that you can just uh, get any time. And, and uh, so, so it, it's, it's been kind of like a, a training ground for, for their, their own military and their paramilitaries, the Wagner group and, and so on. And the same techniques then that they've used in Eastern Ukraine and Libya and so on, you know, they honed those capabilities in Syria and are still doing that. But there's another aspect to the military involvement uh, it's kind of it's kind of uh, strange uh, when you first uh, when when you first hear about it, but uh, Russian military officers, uh, for them, a deployment, a command deployment, or a senior staff deployment to Syria is a hot ticket. Uh, they they compete and jostle to be the ones that go there, and that's because it's a money making scheme. And it it more and more over the years, I think it's come to be viewed by the. Russian General Officer Corps as a way to augment their pensions or their, their salaries. Because one of the first things that uh, uh, senior commanders do when they rotate into Syria is they look to try to get assets. Uh, they get the Syrian regime to give them property or a share of uh, a mine or, or some kind of, or a railhead or a port and so on, or or share of a gas field or an oil field. Why would I mean, the is, Syrians is, do that? I mean, they're just deployed officers. What? Why would they give them a piece of the pie? It's understood. That's the price. That That's the compensation that the Syrians award to the Russian military, to Shoigu and his institution, to keep up the, the support and to, to keep up the military blank check uh, to, to the Syrian regime. I mean, it's something, it's kind of unthinkable for, you know, <laughs> the U.S. military, but that's what they're doing. They're there. There's a personal enrichment stake that the Russian General Officer Corps has in Syria. And so they don't have an incentive to bring the thing to a conclusion that for it to, for it to keep, for, for the conflict to, to be perpetuated, that's in their interest. They can keep testing their weapons. They can keep getting combat experience and they can keep getting the money. There's and another. All of these these are all on an organizational level, and even <laughs> yeah. on a. But but what about on a strategic level? So they see Syria yeah. as this proving ground, as a place to enrich themselves. Uh, they want to show that they're. Uh, yeah. They want to market their their weapon systems uh, to sell them, and they want. Um, and they want to be loyal, or they want to keep their asset in the Arab world afloat. Uh, Assad. Uh, what about from a Russian strategic interest perspective? They would like to they, they would like to break the uh, the the U.S. led security architecture in the region. They they would like to they, they would like to sever or be able to control or pressure the natural channel, the strategic link between the energy producers of the Gulf region and the energy consumers of Europe in particular. Um, 
there's also the Far East as the energy consumers. That's more the Iranians that are looking to uh, to to influence that. I don't I haven't seen that the Russians view that. But but to try to 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 interrupt that natural north south channel between the Gulf, Turkey, Europe, that is the great game there. And and to try to get us to relinquish our uh, our you know four or five decades grip on those relationships and to compete with us there and and, and derange that security system. One you of the ways- But you meant, you, I, I don't want to interrupt you. I actually want to go back to this, but what about Iran? You mentioned Iran and that sort of, I mean, Russia came in, I think it was in 20, 2013, uh, to fight on behalf of Assad with Iran and Hezbollah. So, I mean, Iran is Russia's ally in, in oh, yeah, Iran. Absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Their interests are are in in concert. I mean, I've, I've seen. Are they in complete the years, alignment? Because there's been a lot of talk that no. they aren't. I mean, Israel is no. They're, they're not in they're complete not. alignment. They're not in complete alignment. But these tactical disagreements that they have, kind of at a lower level in Syria, I have never seen it translate into a rift at the top between Moscow and Tehran. They they remain aligned, uh, and because the Iranians also share the same goal, which is to it, which is to establish uh, an east-west axis across the northern Middle East that interrupts the uh, the relationship, the, the strategic link between the Gulf region and Europe. And the Iranians want to be able to to sit astride that, control it. They want to be able to control the flow of energy uh, out of the out out of the Persian Gulf region and across the northern Middle East. And and, and then they think they're going to be a, that that'll make them a superpower, the Iranian regime. And and the Russians, uh, the, the Russians don't appear to have a problem with that, and, and they they enable it. The the other thing that the Russians have done in Syria is they they very skillfully have have done what uh, General McMaster used to call a, uh, the bait and switch strategy, which is for all of the actors that have a stake in the Syrian conflict, the Russians present themselves as the uh, as the constructive partner. So to the Israelis, the Russians advertise themselves as the only power that can restrain uh, the Iranian regime from using Syria to attack Israel and others. Uh, for us, they, they would pitch to our uh, national security community that they're natural allies and Saud is a natural ally in counterterrorism. For the Turks, uh, that they can, <clears throat> the Russians pitch themselves as the, the power that can restrain the PKK and on and on and on. For the Europeans, the, the Russians are, are the natural partner against you know, you know the European jihadis going to Syria and then going back and wreaking havoc and so on. They they cannot deliver on any of their pitches, and they have no intention of delivering on any of their pitches because Why can't they deliver? It, I mean, I, I mean, Russia can restrain well, Iran if it wants to. It it can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, here's the thing: at the same time that the Russians are are offering themselves to the Israelis as the power that can restrain the Iranians, they're, they're offering themselves to the Iranians as the power that can restrain the Israelis and, and, and so on. So they, they, can't, they can't be all things to all people. Uh, and they don't have any intention of, of delivering, uh, of actually delivering on any of that. Their real game, they, they, they will use that as the entree for their real interest, which is to try to uh, undo uh, the the 
the U.S. strategic uh, position in the Middle East. They want to make it so that the Saudis, for example, uh, have to have to uh, split the difference between the Russians and us. That the Emiratis have to. That the Israelis have to. Et cetera, et cetera. That that's uh, that's what they're after. So they're after making it very difficult for all traditional U.S. allies to just be pro-American because doing because right. they have to keep Russia in mind as well all the time, and Russia will, right. will exact a price from Israel if Israel goes with the United States on Ukraine, for instance, as we're experiencing yeah. now. Yeah, and I think they would they would like to get a strategic ascendancy over the energy producers of the Persian Gulf, so that. Uh, those those energy producers um, can't threaten uh, Russia's energy, you know, monopoly and or their their extremely large uh, energy influence into Europe in particular. I think that's that's uh, that's really what they after what they're after, and I think after the last few years, certainly from the Obama administration on, they think they can do it. Well, they think they can achieve that. That was what I was going to say: is that it looks like they're achieving all of their goals. It, um, they they have a ceiling, uh, it, and it's what what I my experience in the in government wasn't that they're um, wasn't that they're invincible, but rather that they're mostly uncontested. That it's very rare it's very rare to to uh, to to see people actually formulating a strategy on the basis of what I just described. Um, and, but when you when they do, or or when or when uh, some of these powers call the Russians bluff, often uh, the the Russians have to give way like, because they're not they're not actually all powerful and and, and they can't afford um, they can't afford to do much more on the ground in Syria than they're doing now. Uh, they've kind of topped out. So th- the Turks located that ceiling. In terms of the strategic capability, the military capability, in 2020, um, in in Idlib, because the Turks dealt the Russians and Assad and Hezbollah a big defeat, and there's nothing that the Russians could do about it. How did uh, they do that? Yeah. What what was it? That well, they, what was it that well, they saw? That you know, they did? you know, for for about a year and a half, the Russians and Assad were doing kind of a creeping, kind of a nibbling at the edges of the um, opposition held territory in northern Syria, northwest Syria. Um, but it got to a point, it, it, it got to a point where it, it, it encroached too closely on, uh, on Turkey's border and, and the Turks then sponsored a counterattack. And they used the, they used the technology that they had developed. So the, 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 the swarm of drones, that tactic of, and of using Turkish commandos and proxy Syrian uh, ground fighters, and and using their air advantage to to destroy the Syrian regime military and the Russians uh, military hardware from the air, and the Russians and the, the Assad regime had no answer, and they still don't. Did uh, that happen? So, the same thing in Nagorno Karabakh, isn't that? Isn't it, it happened three times in 2020. Yeah, that's absolutely right. People don't realize this. Uh, I'm I've been surprised at how this is missed. That that uh, the Turks and their allies defeated the Russians and their allies three times in 2020. And the defeat got worse each time from Idlib to Libya to Nagorno-Karabakh. And, and, and the, 
the military balance uh, in the Northern Middle East and in the Caucasus changed in, in a way that the Russians don't have an answer for yet. I, I guess we'll see in Ukraine whether they're, and it may be that that partly one of the things that's driving what they're doing in Ukraine is the need to try to restore um, the perception of military ascendancy over Turkey and its allies. Uh, but but that was certainly the case in Syria. It was that the the Turks leapfrogged, the Turks and their allies leapfrogged right over the Russians, Assad and Hezbollah in 2020, and and that's why you haven't seen another um, Russia Assad foray into Idlib. It, it's the the war part of the war where the Assad regime was trying to carry you know go from military victory to military victory is is over because Turks. They could what what the Turks showed on the battlefield in Idlib in February March of 2020 was that uh, they could destroy the Syrian army whenever they want. Uh, you know, they, it, they could. It, I'm sorry, I don't want to. I don't want to keep going. I, I have a question, a follow-on question. When when you finish? Sure. I mean, I mean it, it, back in uh, in at the first week of March 2020. Um, there was a ceasefire in armistice that Putin and Erdogan agreed to in Sochi on March 5th. But uh, the, the, at, on that day, the road from uh, where the, Tur the, the Turkish front lines uh, to Aleppo was just almost wide open. Hmm. Uh, there was no there was no reason that if the conflict uh, had gone on for another week or two or three, that the Turks couldn't have just encircled Aleppo. Uh, again, and and that would have been the end of the war for the Assad regime. Uh, so th that was uh, so that was a real. Why did just I, do that? I, I that would have been a that would have been a good thing. It's a to good do. question. Uh, it's a good question. Uh, the the Turks, I think, I think had they had they had that confrontation come at the end of 2020, you know, with Libya and Nagorno Karabakh uh, in the rearview mirror, they might have gone on ahead. But in early 2020, they hadn't yet had those further victories over um, Russia and its allies, and they weren't sure uh, that they could uh, that they had escalation dominance. Could they, they do they, that they now, conceivably? I mean, could that be a NATO response to Ukraine? Would be to uh, to bring down uh, the Assad regime in Syria? I mean, that would be a huge strategic hit for Russia and to any. Yeah. Uh, a, a imperial uh, imperial aspirations that the Russians might have. Well, what what Putin does when 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 he's in a confrontation with uh, Turkey, he escalates by shooting down aircraft or or killing some of their troops or shutting off uh, uh, the flow of tourism or uh, or closing the border to commerce and and. Uh, and that's always something that the Turks have to take that into consideration. So Putin, they, the, the Turks showed that on the battlefield, they've got the advantage. But when you zoom out from it and you have these other, these other aspects, the political aspect, the economic aspect, then, you know, Putin has, uh, Putin has some rejoinders uh, that, that he can use. And, and the Turks, uh, the Turks have, have chosen not to, not to test that. You so talked far. about but they could. You, you talked about the irregular forces, you know, the Wagner Group that the Russians yeah. are deploying in or deployed in Syria. And when we were backing and forthing before uh, we we arranged this uh, this show, um, 
I, I asked whether you had been at the National Security Council when uh, when it was in 2018, I think, when the right. Wagner Group tried to take over the Conoco uh, oil fields that the United States controls uh, with the uh, Kurdish forces, and uh, the U.S. killed what's like 500 uh, Wagner Group uh, troops uh, were trying to cross a river, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, the Euphrates. The Euphrates in, in one night. Um, so yeah. that was another aspect of Russia's strategy of using irregular forces uh, that failed right. in Syria, right? It, it it failed when they went up against uh, when they went up against U.S. special operations forces. Yes, um, when they when the Wagner uh, group fighters have just sort of roamed around the battlefield killing Syrians, they've you know they they haven't had so what they haven't had a similar. So uh, what is their job experience. in Syria then? What what is the Wagner group? You said that there are five thousand Russian force. I guess that's regular Russian forces on any given yeah. day. How many mercenaries are in Syria? Russian mercenaries. That really that that really I you know I would have to I'd have to really look into it because what you because the the Wagner guys they're the little green men you know the little green men that we first saw in uh, Crimea and in eastern Ukraine that then show and and so they tend to go where the Russians want to wage a war uh, in a in a uh, an unacknowledged you know non-attributional way and and so uh, I mean I've there have been times where they were almost gone from Syria because they were over in Libya or they were in Nagorno-Karabakh or they were you know somewhere else so so that that really waxes and wanes that they are they're essentially uh, an arm of the Russian state an army of the Russian military, but that that's waging war by itself. They also, they, they do it for profit. So the Wagner group, um, they, they have some military objectives, but they will also go in Syria where they can, um, they can scarf up assets. They can, they can seize a gas field or they can seize a port or they can seize money or, or what have you, seize some kind of asset. Uh, they're, they're looking to plunder. So that's a, it's possible that they're also, uh, that there are Spetsnaz, for example, that are doing that as well, you know, in a, in a, in an unacknowledged way uh, for the Russians. So but they're just another, they're, they're another tool in the Russian military uh, kit bag. So they're not independent actors. They're sent there as a matter of Russian state policy. Right. So let's just, okay. So let's just go one more layer of the Russian presence in Syria, and then we can move to uh, the United States in Syria, because that's another actor that we have to understand. So um, I started this discussion, and the reason why I wanted to talk about Russia and Syria is because of the deployment of the hypersonic missile and the and the nuclear bombers uh, in Syria uh, last week. What what do you make of this deployment? Why why do you why do you think that they're doing it now? Well, I I mean. Um... I'm never sure what they're actually doing. There are a lot of some of those reports that come out. Sometimes it comes from the Russians themselves. This came from and the it, Russians, and it, right? This, and this it's so it's part of a psy. Yeah, oftentimes it's part of psyop. It's this is messaging, it's signaling. It's never uh, so. It's it's concerning, but um, when you look at the military capabilities of the that the U.S. and U.S. allies have around the region, what the Russians have put, can put into Syria is minuscule. Um, 
that doesn't mean it's not a problem. Uh, Defense Minister Shoigu showing up uh, in uh, at Humaymi Air Base the other day, and essentially implying that Humaymi that air base could be brought into service uh, in a war with Ukraine, um, and so that Syria would become a base for Russian military operations into Europe. I mean, that's uh, that's crossing some red lines, uh, but. The, the military balance, the, the Russians really, in, in Syria, they get a lot out of a small footprint. They get an awful lot out of a small footprint. Uh, and, uh, and I don't know how sustainable it would be for them to, to try to you know, really increase that. It's expensive, uh, but, it is a, uh, but it is a danger. No, it's, so it's, they're, they're, they're doing that for signaling. They're doing that. As, as part of the, you know, the game of risk and brinksmanship that they're involved in. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's one hell of a signal though, sending, uh, you know, uh, hypersonic, uh, hypersonic missiles to, to Syria and, you know, presumably pointing them at, uh, at the Dardanelles. And, you know, I mean, that saying that the that the battlefield has just been expanded to the Levant, and that the Levant, from our strategic purposes, uh, is part of the European battlefield as well. I mean, that's something that didn't happen in the Cold War because nobody had that kind of power projection the way that you have now with these missiles. So, I mean, that that's a new development that seems to me, you know, to have independent strategic significance, you know, just sort of regardless of what else. And you, you think that, well, if they have one or two uh, hypersonic missiles, I mean, I don't know what number they have there, that that's not actually a game changer in terms of the strategic realities in Europe or, you know. I don't think it, I, at that at that level, I don't think it would be. And the other thing that I would look at is, you know, Turkey is a, it has a very powerful uh, military capability. And, I, I just uh, keep looking if, at my area map on my wall when you're talking. Yeah. If, if, if everybody can get out really, their maps when they're doing when they're watching the show, so they can know what in the hell we're talking about. Yeah. Remember, so so Russia and Turkey are really they're just kind of in a pause to this long running war that they've had going back to you know when the Russians first started making war at Idlib, and uh, yeah. It's, it looks to me like the Turks have been at war with the Russians since 2015, 2016. They're just kind of in a pause. And if the Russians were to try to move uh, significant new capabilities into Syria, I, it, the, Turkey is the biggest target for that, uh, more, more so than Europe. And past a certain point, the Turks don't have to accept that. Uh, the, the Turks... Uh, um, if it really comes down to it, and the Russians are establishing a strategic outpost there that would be a, a, a real threat to Turkey, at a certain point, it becomes just in the interest of the Turks to 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 just stop that, intervene in a in a much bigger way than they've done, uh, take Aleppo back out of the regime's hands, etc. Uh, you know, it, which they 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 can do. Um, so so it's uh, it's this is. I think, but you know, the Russians take these risks, and the Russians, the Russians push and push and push and push, and if they're not, uh, if they don't hit pushback, they'll keep going, and uh, and that's that's what this that's what this uh, this represents. I think when when they when they get pushback, they will back off. Uh, if you remember a couple of years ago, um, 
they were engaged in this thing where they were they had some reckless uh, uh, patrols up in northeast Syria trying to run our people off the road and stuff like that. Well, they were and just so buzzing U.S. forces, I think, uh, they in were, Banff this week. They were buzzing U.S. forces uh, at the air base uh, yeah. in in, uh, in Tomf. Yeah, to see what we'll do. It's like a game of chicken. They will lose. I mean, we, I mean, we have the capability to just squash them, and and they know that. So it's just a matter of how restrained Where, in, we want to be. Syria. Anywhere, anywhere in the Middle East, they cannot match us, uh, nor can the Iranians. Um, and uh, there was a so the the way that the way that the U.S. Uh, commanders put a stop to that Russian harassment nonsense in the Northeast was that they they just they quietly moved M1 tanks into the Northeast and and uh, and Bradley fighting vehicles and they just kind of started patrolling with them. They, I don't think they even really moved the tanks around. They just kind of I, I think they just moved them there and sat them there. But which year and, was this? This was uh, 2019, 2020. Mm -hmm. Probably I was probably 2020. I'd have to go back and look, but. Uh, it, there's been a couple of times where CENTCOM and the and the command in Baghdad have just moved an armored capability into eastern Syria or an artillery capability in eastern Syria and said, okay, you, you want to escalate? Okay, here's, you know, checkmate. And and the Russians have had to back off because they 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 can't match what we would put there. If there there was a time where I think the CENTCOM commander put um, a battalion minus, meaning part of the battalion of armor, U.S. armor into eastern Syria. And when uh, when CENTCOM did that, that small armor force became the most powerful military force in Syria. And and really, if you'd zoom, zoom back out from it and looked at the military cap the military balance, there was nothing. If if that battalion had gotten the orders to drive to Damascus. There's nothing in Syria that could stop them. I, I, I mean, that's once I, I want to take a step back, but I have to say, I find that hard to believe only because, you know, um, it, they have anti-tank capabilities. I mean, Israeli armored columns that were going into Lebanon in 2006 were attacked by Cornet missiles then. I it's mean, a whole different, no, no, it's a whole different ballgame when you're because what because a u.s armored force has has an air cap over it it has it has intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance over it and no one's going to be able to get close so without being knocked out of the sky or killed way beforehand and and there's no there's not any force on force that's uh, you know if they just if this if a u.s tank battalion just got to drive from Hasaka, cross the river, go to Palmyra, et cetera. There's, there's literally nothing in Syria that could stop them. That, that's, that's the actual, so what, what we're dealing with, Caroline, in, you know, in the Northern Middle East, in, across the whole Middle East, we're dealing with a lot of weak actors mm -hmm. relative to US power. And they're, they're so weak as, as they're, they look formidable when you just look at them against one another. But it's it's sort of like if it's sort of like if a high school kid came upon a group of of uh, of third graders that are fighting each other, and you know the, the uh, one high school kid's going to be able to break up the fight or do anything that that they want. 
that that's the that's the actual relative power and and we miss that because the us doesn't use that we don't project that kind of power very much we don't use we, we don't use what's in the arsenal but if, if you look at it sorry go ahead no but i mean but i guess that i think first of all i want to take a step back for a second and talk about the united states presence in syria um, yeah. And what it what it signifies and what it accomplishes, I think that it, you get more bang for your uh, buck with uh, I think it was 900 forces that the U.S. has deployed in Syria than you have for U.S. forces almost anywhere else uh, that right. you can think of because of the yeah. way that they're strategically planted on that on that border area between Jordan and Iraq and Syria, and right. the air base and what what kind of power projection that gives them. Um, but can you talk a little bit about that? Because uh, and talk about it in a, in a in a couple of ways. I mean, one of them is that there was a lot of criticism of of Obama when he brought them in because the problem, the strategic problem for the United States, is it was never ISIS. ISIS was always just yuck, you know, and horrible. But it wasn't a strategic threat. A strategic threat to U.S. allies, to U.S. forces, and to U.S. interests in the Middle East was always Iran, and yet. The Obama administration yeah. deployed the forces in in Syria specifically against ISIS and actually tried to at least put a pr pretend that they were cooperating with the Iranians in the fight against ISIS to legitimize the Iranians while I while Obama was was negotiating the JCPOA in 14 and 15 um and then uh Trump really wanted to get them out of Syria, along with his his larger concept of wanting to withdraw U.S. forces from the Middle East um, and hand things over to U.S. allies there to handle. Um, so you've had this weird, weird deployment where the actual enemy is not the enemy that the United States is supposed to be fighting in Syria, but but rather this other guy, ISIS, and and yet the. The, and, and so it's not clear what the United States seeks to accomplish with with its presence in Syria. I know that, you know, I was I was really up in arms personally on a personal level when I found out that uh, Donald Trump wanted to take them out, given the the stability that such a small force brings. And then they, he was convinced to leave uh, to leave the 900 forces there. But Talk a little bit about what what U.S. forces do in Syria and what they don't do, and um, and then I think we should move a little bit to the question of U.S. will uh, and and how the lack of will or act or presence of will manifests manifests it itself over time and and how we're supposed to look at it today as well. Well, I, the first thing I would say is that it, it, is that I, ISIS is still a problem. Um, it's a uh, and, and it's a problem. I, my experience in Iraq was just watching, um, watching us destroy ISIS or destroy, you know, ISIS or its forerunners, right, in the field as a as a fighting force, and then and then lift the pressure, and then they come right back. It's it's just like you're sweeping the water out and it just runs back in. Um, I pointed out to my team over time that since 2003, Mosul has changed hands eight times. And and if you, if if we're just going to leave, if we're just going to lift the pressure, it's going to change hands again. There are pe be people who say, well, that's not really our problem. I mean, it, but you know, it is our problem. Um, it, it is our problem because it becomes uh, it becomes a basis of a threat to uh, our allies in the region, some of whom are vulnerable to an ISIS kind of uh, of movement and and a 
military force, it, it becomes a real threat to Europe. I, you know, what really catalyzed U.S. action wasn't just uh, ISIS taking over Mosul and, and eastern Syria and so on. It's that in 2015, ISIS began to project into Europe right. to try to to try to provoke basically a European civil war. That I mean, that is really what they were trying to do to 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 make inroads into the Muslim communities of Europe and 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 provoke us a, a religious war, and uh, and and they didn't do they were they showed that they had some pretty good reach uh, from from Syria and Iraq. So so it's something that you can't just leave alone. Um, geopolitically, it's not it, it does not approach the scale of the. Uh, Iranian regime. They're not proliferating state, nuclear state. weapons, and they don't all have that. Exactly. that they've they, raised and that they control all over the region. They're not able exactly. They're not able to draw upon state resources and and so on, and and to and to use the resources of a country of ninety million people and a and a you know seven hundred billion dollar economy. So 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 there's no. You're absolutely right. There's no comparison in the scale of the threat, uh, st- strategically speaking, but. Uh, I also I don't have any doubt that if that if we were just to sort of close up shop tomorrow in Syria and Iraq, the ISIS would be right back in in short order because I've seen that happen over and over and over again. Um, the the same so so the troops the military mission uh, of of trying to handle ISIS and, and 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 crunch them as a clandestine terrorist network in Syria and Iraq that's still out there. In TANF, there's still a military mission against ISIS because w- having that having that presence in t- the TANF circle prevents ISIS from taking the easiest routes between Syria and Iraq and Jordan, and and it's it's a huge thing. Now, the corollary effect, w- which was w- important for me in the White House, and then as as a you know sort of Syria political guy, was that as you're doing that military mission against ISIS in the Northeast and in the Southeast of, of Syria, you are denying the best highways to Qasem Soleimani, you know, the dearly departed Qasem Soleimani's armies and, and to, have that, uh, to have that east-west strategic access that the Iranian regime wants to be able to consolidate in order to fight a war against Israel. Um, so it's, it's, it's vital that those troops stay there. Those troops don't have to be fighting the Iranians to have a really big impact on the Iranians, on the Iranian regime and Hezbollah and so on. They're also, strategically, uh, the, the, the best resources that Syria has as a country, they're the oil, the gas, the wheat, a lot of the oh, water, yeah. is right up there in the Northeast where, where the U.S. troops are, are sitting. And, and so it would be... It, it, it would be uh, not smart to abandon that. And that's why President Trump, having, you know, having made sort of initial moves uh, to withdraw us completely, then sort of the pendulum swung back uh, because the, just the, the, the geographical reality, the strategic reality of, uh, of, of these other aspects of Eastern Syria came into play. Um, you know, I mean, I, I was not, I was not a fan of, pulling troops out of Syria, uh, you know, to, in my, at my little level, I advised against that. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad that we didn't um, because that the, we, we, as you put it, we get a lot of bang for the buck uh, 
for just the several hundred troops that are there. I, I would not like, plus if they weren't there, then you'd have the Russians and Assad and Hezbollah and the Quds Force and the Iraqi Hashid controlling the entirety of the Euphrates Valley, right up on the Turkish border, right down on the Jordanian border, controlling that Syria-Iraq border completely. And, and then uh, I mean, the, the Iranian regime, they already, they have, they have sort of a narrower artery that they, they can use to reach across Iraq, Syria, to the Golan, to Lebanon, and to pose a, uh, an unprecedented new threat to Israel and to Jordan, and, and actually to Turkey, because they, they project power into Aleppo as well. Um, but if we weren't there, they always have to be careful, because if, if really there was a war, then it, it wouldn't be that hard for us to, to pinch off that strategic channel the ground part of it and the air part of it too, from, from uh, the presence that we have. Uh, so it's a restraint. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bit of a deterrent uh, against them in the event of a real escalation, a real confrontation. So I, it would be real, really unwise strategically for us to just give that up. You know, um, David Wormser, who's uh, who's my uh, partner on this show, many many uh, very quite often, um, he he suggested to me today uh, we were uh, exchanging texts about what's happening uh, with Ukraine and with Syria mm-hmm. and Russia uh, and the whole triangle, and and he he said, you know, this is really a time to take down Assad. I mean, I, I mentioned it before, but you know, if the United States wanted to retaliate, I mean, sort of like uh, Putin is kind of, I don't know if he's a master, but he's certainly good at misdirection. You know, his announcement that he was recognizing the independence of two Eastern provinces in Ukraine that he's essentially, you know, that he's controlled for the past several years. uh, It just, it gets people confused and it hits them where they weren't expecting and they keep expecting that frontal invasion of Ukraine and ends up that he's just taking Ukraine apart piece by piece and and saying, okay, this is how I'm going to move. I'm just moving, you know, I'm moving my queen forward. Just one, you know, what are you going to do now, right? Because you were expecting a whole a whole move along the chessboard, and that's not what you're getting. Um, and you know, if if the United States wanted to say, okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna take out Assad, or you know, we're gonna we're gonna threaten your presence in Syria another way, take away your your foothold there. We're gonna um, we're gonna we're gonna take away some asset that you have. We're gonna back is because with the Biden administration has sort of walked back their backing of U.S. of Israeli airstrikes in in Syria, so that without that full U.S. backing of U.S. Uh, of sorry of Israeli operations in Syria, the Russians feel much more at ease with trying to uh, limit what Israel is doing in Syria in a way that they wouldn't have done under Trump and in a way that they tried to do under Obama. Um, so the U.S. could take some more assertive actions in Syria if it wanted to, and this really speaks to U.S. will, right? Because a lot of U.S. allies, I know Israel is certainly one of them, is looking at what the Biden administration is doing and its sort of flaccid response to Iranian and Iranian proxy aggression against U.S. allies like the UAE, Saudi, yeah. um, and so on and so forth. And uh, they're saying, well, what can we get from Russia? Egypt that's under sanctions for God only knows what reason from the Biden administration is now seeming to become a much more active purchaser of military equipment from Russia, which 
Russia, I'm sure it hopes to be able to use to extend their strategic reach back to the Suez Canal for the first time since 73. Um, so you're looking at a whole force projection thing that's a spoiler that you're, you're, you have US pullback, you have US uh, uh, realignment towards Iran and away from Israel and the Sunnis, and uh, you have Russia taking advantage of this. I think, um, so, okay, on the, the, there, there's the question of capabilities. Could the U.S. intervene in Syria in a way and just sort of, uh, um, let, let's say, uh, uh, collapse the, the Russians' main client support, there? Yes. Support Obviously Turkey. We could do support that. Turkey with a left. Support Turkey. Yes. Yeah. That, that, is, that is very positive. Yeah, that's doable. Um, whether, you know, having spent most of 2021 in Congress and been, you know, having lived there in Washington for quite a while, um, hard for me to imagine that there would be the political will in Washington or anywhere in the United States for that kind of intervention, certainly as we're thinking about it now. I mean, if you get a couple of moves into this, into this game, this, this confrontation with the Russians, then maybe, you know, that the will would appear. But what what I uh, what I have noticed is that th there are a lot of things short of that uh, that there there very much would be support to do here in Washington that are not being done. Um, the Caesar Act is the is the very first one that comes to mind. What's the, that? You know, I would the C the Caesar Act is the is the act passed by Congress, it, and it, it takes its name from those the photographs. That the uh, the the Syrian uh, military photographer smuggled out, which which showed just the Holocaust-like um, mass murder and torture that the Assad regime was was carrying out, and so this it, it's a really hard-hitting uh, sanctions program against the Assad regime and its allies, and it, uh, President Trump signed it into law in December of 2019. It took effect in June of 2020. And we were issuing sanctions under the auspices of that program until the end of the Trump administration, and then it just kind of has gone on pause. Um, and, and one of the reasons I think that it went on pause was that um, the U.S. government has been in a mode for more than a year of whether it's Syria or Iran of be, being in a mode of, of of sort of going along to get along with the Russians. And so I, I, I think there was the idea of, because the Caesar Act was this inexorable economic pressure and political isolation on the Assad regime, it, that was, it was so heavy, it was having such an impact on the regime that it was clear neither Assad nor the Russians were resilient to it. Could, they just had no answer for it. Uh, that that could have that would have if it kept up. I think it probably would have led to the collapse of the regime, or certainly bring the regime to the brink of collapse, where the Russians and Assad would have had to cry uncle and negotiate it into the conflict, that in a way that they don't want to have to do. But those punches were pulled in 2021 in favor of working with the Russians to get UN Security Council action to keep cross-border humanitarian assistance flowing and stuff like that. Well. I think, you know, when, when you're seeing what Putin is doing in Ukraine, the idea of holding, of pulling your punches on the Russians' main regional client 
in the interest of getting along with the Russians should be out the window. There's really, there's no rationale. I don't think there was a valid rationale all along, but there certainly shouldn't be one now. And I, I think if I were, you know, the king of America, I, I would be slapping back those sanctions. I would be doing new sanctions every week, every two weeks, every month on the Assad regime. I would be doing it on Russian companies, on the Russian military industrial complex for their activities in Syria, on the Iranian regime and Hezbollah for their activities uh, in Syria. None of that's being done I mean, in a, in a really also, significant way. But that also uh, conflicts with the Biden administration's chief foreign policy aim, which is to appease Iran and to get a deal with them. So uh, imposing sanctions on on yeah. uh, Assad, who is an Iranian proxy, or on obviously, or on Hezbollah, or on Iran itself, is antithetical to that goal, right? Also, Russia, well, because they actually want Russia on board for the for the nuclear deal. Yeah, you know, I mean, I was in the Senate when when uh, then Secretary of State nominee designate uh, Tony Blinken and Deputy Secretary of State. Uh, designee Wendy Sherman came before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and said that the Biden administration was not going to do that, that they were not going to just relegate Syria or any other um, any other uh, security problem to being just a card that is used uh, in, in the JCPOA, in the, in the negotiations over the JCPOA. So, and certainly uh, the situation in Ukraine, I, I think any reasonable um, any reasonable strategist here in Washington would see that there's there's just absolutely no reason uh, there's there's no reason that makes any sense um, in not pouring on the pressure on the Assad regime and on and certainly other uh, Russian clients as well. But the, you know those aren't in my lane. The one the big one that's in my lane and it's hugely important to all of the people, the same decision makers in Russia who are doing what they're doing in Ukraine are the decision makers in Syria. They're the same actors controlling Russian policy in Syria. And so I, I think it, 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 makes, it makes perfect sense. Not just that, I mean, but uh, I mean, the Caesar Act it is, if the United States is not gonna stand for the idea of never again, you know, you, we're not, this is meant to be, this is meant to be a principle that's, that, that, that is consistent from administration to administration, is when, when when a rogue regime models itself on Nazi Germany during the Holocaust, that's supposed to be crossing a red line. Where you know it it, it is it, it's not just in our moral interest, but it's in our strategic interest not to allow that that precedent to be set, uh, so that so that rogue regimes and dictators take you know do a carbon copy of that approach uh, all over the world. In the coming century, so it it there was never I don't think there was there was never a legitimate case uh, for for pulling the pressure off of the Assad regime, uh, and there certainly isn't when when you're when we're looking for ways um, when when we're looking for ways to impose costs on Vladimir Putin uh, for his, for his policy not just in Ukraine but elsewhere, then uh, the Caesar Act, serious sanctions, seems to me is the perfect place to start. Um, okay, so I want to move to Israel, but just I think you had mentioned, or maybe I misheard you, that there were other things and that you would start with the Caesar Act. Where else would you go on that score? Is there are there well, other things that you would suggest or? 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, now it, we, we've had we've had so much hand wringing over uh, over sanctions on uh, on on uh, Russian assets on Nord Stream 2 and so on in, in Europe. Uh, but uh, there have been precious few sanctions on um, on Russia for what it's done in Syria. Uh, but the Russian, as I say, the Russian military and you find the same the same big Russian military industrial uh, uh, entities are are knee deep in Syria. Uh, the same ones that that uh, that we would target over over Ukraine. Uh, so it, it it seems to me, you know, what why I, I don't think we should have let them skate for so long uh, based on what they've on they've done in what they've done in Syria. So uh, I, I think uh, it, it's a is a perfect place to impose costs, not just on Assad himself, but also on the Russians directly for what they've done in, in Syria. So um, that brings me to uh, where I'm sitting, uh, Israel. Um, you know, Israel's been significantly challenged, obviously, by Russia and their presence in Syria. When when the Russians came in and they installed their uh, S-300s and S-400s, uh, Israel, for the first time, lost its air superiority uh, since 1982, when, when, as you mentioned uh, earlier in this broadcast, uh, Israel destroyed the Syrian Air Force, um, which, was, which was Russian technology-based and supported. Um, yeah. And and so this has been a strategic shift of epic proportions for Israel. And now, you know, in order to try to deconflict our air sorties into into Syria, we're we're doing this. We have this coordination mechanism with with uh, the Russians that sometimes they pull away from, sometimes they go back to. And Israel is constantly in a state of concern that we're going to end up in a conflict with Russia. Um, and uh, and it, and Russia, like you said, they're doing a bait and switch with Israel as well because they're both protecting Iran and its presence in in uh, in um, Syria as well as Hezbollah and its presence in Syria and Lebanon, and they're also limiting their operations there. And and I actually think that you know Putin could come to the Iranians and say. I'm limiting the Israelis and he would be telling the truth. And he could come to the Israelis and say, I'm limiting the Iranians and you'd be telling the truth. That is, he is playing one side, he is playing the middle against both sides. He's doing it successfully because everybody uh, is, I mean, he is manipulating everybody. He's there. Nobody wants to get into a confrontation. Israel does not want to get into a confrontation with him. The Iranians need him for his air uh assets uh in protection of Assad and so they can't get rid of him so he's made himself the indispensable player but he's also uh undermining yeah. he's also undermining Israel's power in the region in a very significant way and now and Israel's relations with the Biden administration are also very bad because the Biden administration is realigning the United States towards Iran and away from Israel and and the Sunnis and that's just that's just true um, so Israel's looking at this. How is how if you if you were advising Israel, what or if you were an Israeli looking at this with the knowledge that you have, what would you be seeing when you're looking at this situation? If you well, can I put on this, that cap yeah. for a second. Well, I had this. Uh, you know, I, this was the issue uh, on which I was dealing with Israeli counterparts for years, mm -hmm. and uh, this went in Hezbollah. In uh, and this what what is the, the the Syria issue plus Hezbollah, mm -hmm. and in particular the uh, 
and in particular, uh, you know, the whole, the, uh, the weapons factories, the new, mm -hmm. the new missile. missile improvement factories that the, the, uh, the, the PGMs, precision guided munitions that were um, showing up in, in Lebanon. But um, what, uh, there, there was, there's been this unrealistic idea that I think, I don't think is the majority view in Israel, but it's certainly a strong minority view in Israel is that Assad can be brought, he can be coaxed away from the Iranians and that there's a way, and that, for example, if, if Israel would support uh, the normalization of Assad if Israel could could convince the United States to lay off of Assad, that Assad and the Russians would then be able to expel the Iranians or expel them over time. Where, and in particular, for example, is uh, Emirati oil could show up and be a gift to Assad, and then he that that somehow. But the the this is based on the premise that the Assad regime's relationship with the Iranian regime is just a marriage of convenience. It's mm -hmm. unfortunate. It's, they have no other choice. Well, I mean, it's a this. loose, it, this is, it's, this is the view of the Israeli left because they want to see, yeah. they don't want to see uh, a, a synergistic or a, uh, a partnership between Iran and Syria because they don't want to believe it exists. And then they don't want it, to believe that yeah. Iran, I mean, that Syria really does want to annihilate Israel because they think that if they can make it about real estate, then Israel can run away from the Golan, give it to Assad and everything will be better. I mean, this is the fantasy. It, it is fantastical. It, it, is, it is fantastical. Uh, it's, it, this is the this is the uh, an approach that's been tried over and over again. It never works, yeah. um, and and that's because the relationship between the IRGC and the Assad regime is hardwired. It's baked in, and, and 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 it's also it's it's not a marriage of convenience for Bashar al-Assad. This is where his heart is. He he thinks that his his way to secure his place in history is to be on what he thinks is the winning side. He thinks the axis of resistance is the winning side in the in the coming century, and he's not going to give up that relationship. the The only way, my my judgment, and this is what I tried to this was my input to U.S. policy and my advice to all the counterparts that I dealt with was the only way to get the Assad regime and the Russians to actually do what the Israelis and others would require for their existential security needs would be to bring the Assad regime at least to the brink of collapse. They would have to get to the point where there was no alternative. The only choice between them was doing what, what all the good guys require or collapse or the end. And only then but we're not they, even close to that. I mean, there's there. But, that's not even that's not even in in a distant. Not right now. Liquor. You're, you know, in the, in well, the, actually, so here, my, this was my other experience: is that the Assad regime is is in, so incredibly weak and and, today, and vulnerable, and oh yeah, in in ways that we can affect. Uh, that if the I mean the the pressure valve has you know it, the 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 rheostat has been turned down, uh, but if it were turned back up. There's not really much that Assad and the Russians could do about it, um, and this is in particular the economic pressure is what I'm talking about. They're they're on they're they're so shaky, they remain really vulnerable, and and they just can't they they, they can't get the resources that they would need to to be able to survive 
a true return to a pressure policy. That was the tr that was the theory of the case in the Trump administration. That was what, under Secretary Pompeo's guidance, that's what Jim Jeffrey and I were. That's what we were implementing, and I and we were making pretty good headway. But then, <laughs> then we were invited to leave. <laughs> it's invited very nicely to leave. But 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 I mean, I I think that, and not only were you invited to leave, and not only were the sanctions uh, ended effectively or no longer enforced, but also the United States is now enabling Iran to get enriched by not enforcing the sanctions that still haven't been removed and moving now with the uh, negotiations in Vienna to remove whatever sanctions exist. You know, it, it, it struck me, I'll just throw this out more for, for our viewers than, than for you, is just that, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about uh, the Iranians demanding that the agreement be, uh, that, that, the, that the U.S. abdicate the ability to uh, reinstate the sanctions, but yeah, um, but that is kind of um, it, it's it's sort of a, a red herring because the agreement itself is supposed to end during Biden's term, and then all of the restrictions on Iran's nuclear operations are supposed to be removed. Or, I mean, they're only supposed to last for two and a half more years because the initial agreement was until 2025. Yeah. So and, that, and the arms embargo is already gone. Right. So, so that there, there, I mean, it would be a completely different set of, of sanctions that would be put on. It wouldn't be put on in the framework of anything because it, the JCPOA or whatever this joke of an agreement is that's about to be signed, um, they end while Biden is president. So that that's sort of a, that's yeah. a non-demand demand. It, does, it doesn't have any relevance. Well, there's a really, there, there's a really, um, uh, uh, unhelpful uh, historical revisionism that's gone on that is uh, that that wants to to depict uh, Iran the Iranian regime's regional aggression as a response to Trump leaving the JCPOA. And in fact, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I was there, and the regional aggression came before we left the JCPOA. And in fact. Um, you, you know, the, inside the Trump administration, there was a lot of division. With, you know, leave it, don't leave it. How do you leave it? When do you leave it? There was a lot of uncertainty, and and I don't know what would have happened had, but but I mean, President Trump's hand was forced, not not just by the impending end of the restrictions on the on the nuclear program and on the arms embargo and so, so on. But by what Qasem Soleimani and by what the IRGC Missile Command were doing in the region, and that it where, it, where in, in in during a time when the United States had agreed not to sanction in response to those things, or, or when the United States couldn't reach an agreement with the Europeans in particular, I was part of those negotiating teams. I, I mean, already Qasem Soleimani. Uh, and Abdulreza Shalai, for example, were firing missiles at Riyadh, at Saudi cities, at Abu Dhabi before the United States left the Iran deal. And when we looked at what are the options, you know, we, any any good uh, strategic cell in an administration to say, well, here, Mr. President, these are your response options. And I'm sorry, Mr. President, you're unable to. You agree. You're in an agreement where you agree not to use economic pressure in response to these acts of war that the Iranian regime is committing against your allies. 
and that was unacceptable for 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 any president, certainly for President Trump. So you know, the, there were envoys dispatched to the Europeans to say, "Look, you, what we've got right now is it's as though you've taken the economic, the United States economic pressure tools, which is it's some of the most effective tools we have, and we put them behind glass only in the service of the Iranian regime's nuclear program." Now they've got all these other things. They've got missile development, terrorism, human rights abuses. They're actually committing war against uh, regional allies of yours, Europeans. You know, your energy producers, they're attacking. They attacked the G20 capital, Riyadh. That should matter to you. And you're saying you will not agree to us uh, that, that, you, that your ruling is that if we try to sanction the Iranian entities that are doing that, that we're abrogating the JCPOA. And, and so under those terms, you know, the president was not going to stay in the deal. Uh, but so, so again, the hand was forced by, by all the things that the Iranian regime did under the cover of the JCPOA, which was their, that was their plan. That was the Iranians' plan. Right. If, and if, if you, you would add to that as well, the development of the advanced centrifuges during the lifespan of yeah, the deal, right. which was allowed, right? And so... You know, David Wormser has argued convincingly. He said, "Look, you mean the the deal uh, was a snapshot of where Iran was, so that and and it enabled it, Iran to get to where they are today, right? That they could only enrich to three six seven percent in uranium, but that was all they could do in 2015. So it was enabling them to continue to do what they were doing, and it enabled them to develop what they needed to do next. And so." You know, they were willing to give up some stockpile of the uranium in order to get international permission, the U.S. permission, the Security Council permission to then develop the, the second generation, third generation centrifuges that enabled them to uh, enrich uh, 10 times the rate uh, and to much higher levels of purity. So that you, you're taking both the regional aggression, the missile development, um, the proxy wars, the terrorism sponsorship, yeah. and you Narco add that to, right, and you add that to the nuclear proliferation that was happening through R and D during the course of their, you know, supposed respecting the limitations that the JCPOA placed on their nuclear deal, and you see that this was a proliferation, not a non-proliferation agreement. So I mean, there's and and all the all of the counter, you know, the anti-chronological. Uh, uh, explanations of what happened with the deal are, are indeed uh, unhelpful. But just for one second to go back to Israel and Syria. So obviously the peacenik thing, you're not going to, you know, at the Carolina League Middle East News Hour, you're not going to get any arguments that the Israeli left's view of Assad is is delusional um, and and deeply detrimental to U.S. to Israeli national security and by the way to U.S. national security as well as our all delusional strategic policies. But um, looking at it today, looking at the way that Putin is now, you know, deploying strategic forces against presumably Turkey, the United States, uh, in NATO allies uh, in Syria itself, um, how how would you look at this development as an Israeli? Would you be sanguine? Would you not care? Well, that hypersonic missile is not directed at us; that's overkill. Or would you look at it as? Um, as uh, an, an upgrade of Assad's strategic significance for uh, for Russia, and then as an indication that Russia may become more hostile to Israel, or you know, where where do you where do you see that from the regional actor's perspective, specifically this regional actor, Israel? Okay, well, so I think um, 
anything the Russians do in Syria, uh, they they do knowing that they they can someday use it to make an implicit threat to Israel. And there were, I think there was a difference of opinion in Israel on that, that ended with the incident where the Syrian regime shot down right. a Russian plane in 2018. And the Russians knew that the Syrian regime shot it down, but the Russians blamed Israel. the Israelis for the shoot down and then punished Set, set out to punish the Israelis for the shoot down and took the opportunity to move advanced air defense systems into Syria, knowing full well that the Israelis had done nothing to endanger uh, Russian presence and never would. Um, and, and so that, that, was such, uh, that was such a betrayal. And I think it was an eye-opening moment for those in the Israeli system who held out the hope that well, actually, you know, Putin shares our interests, and you know, da, 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 and, and the the scales fell away from the eyes in, in that incident. And so, if I were the Israelis, just on the strength of that uh, example alone, I would be very, very concerned about anything that the Russians move into Syria. Just as the Turks should be very concerned, because even insofar the the Russians have not really used their military hardware against the Israelis. Um, they've allowed the Syrian regime to use to use it against the Israelis, but they have used it against the Turkish military directly. And, and so both Turkey and Israel, I think, share this interest in not seeing the Russians expand their their footprint. So I think we have to we have to close down because this is the Middle East news hour and we're already past that, which inevitably happens with with me because I'm famously long-winded. But um, it seems to me that the take-home lesson for the United States from what Russia is doing in Syria, at the same time that it's massively escalating its aggression uh, in eastern Ukraine, uh, is to, as you say, uh, re-implement and uh, strongly implement the or fully implement the Caesar Act. And from the Israeli perspective, um, I think um, uh, and I think that the obvious play here, maybe not obvious, but the proper play would be to uh, really see where Erdogan is going with his courtship of Israel and to see how we could safely um, cooperate uh, with Turkey on um, yeah. in Syria and in other places as well. Yeah, that, that would be a real game changer. Um, it was such a uh, is such an obstacle um, to trying to get, you know, regional alignment against the Qasem Soleimani and Hezbollah threat. Um, uh, for example, uh, I think that would be if 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 there could be um, a, a a restoration of the kind of Israeli-Turkish strategic relationship that you had before uh, um, before the the you know the ship incident. Uh, way back when, I th that would be that that would spell real trouble for the Iranian regime, Hezbollah, Assad, and Russia, and it, that would be the the single biggest, most positive development strategically. Is if the if if U.S. U.S. allies could uh, coordinate their regional strategy together in a way that hasn't been the case 
for, and it's been a missed opportunity. You know, we'll look at the opportunity cost uh, for the for the last 10, 12 years. Well, you know, you got to you got to talk about that with Turkish voters who keep who keep uh, reinstating uh, Erdogan. As I think it's results. doable. I mean, it, it's it, I think it, it look, it's I think it's doable with Turkey as it is with Turkey as it is that this is still still the the sort of, you know, the the tension, the misalignment among the different uh, U.S. regional allies is not necessary. That can be overcome even with it, just even with, with the configuration that's there now. I have no doubt. All right. Well, from your from your mouth to God's ears, and, and it and it looks like it may happen. Uh, President Herzog is going to be going to Turkey uh, in a in a meeting that Erdogan asked for. Um, so inshallah, inshallah. Right, exactly. We'll have to see. Bezratashim. All right. Well, thank you so much, Colonel Joel Rayburn, for joining me today. I'll have you guys know that uh, Colonel Rayburn is the first guest that I've had on this show that isn't an old friend of mine, but now you're a new friend. So we'll be very happy to have you Voila. back on the Voila. show. Yeah. And we have to thank uh, Victoria Coates, Dr. Coates, for, for making the introduction. I really appreciate it. Um, and guys, uh, obviously, this uh, development with the Syrians um, and the Russians and everything happening in Europe, it works out that we're all uh, due to the, in large part, due to the range of a lot of these missiles, we're all one big, happy, unhappy, dysfunctional neighborhood. And so um, everything touches everything else. Um, and that's why uh, this uh, Middle East News Hour is your essential guide for understanding everything that's happening here. So uh, sh watch this show. Obviously, you already have because you've gotten to this closing. Uh, share this show, subscribe, and uh, have everybody you know subscribe as well. Let's get the message out. Thank you so much, Colonel Rayburn. And thank you guys for watching. And we'll see you again uh, next week. Take care. Thank you.